We're going to go ahead and uh, worship this morning. Um, I guess the current guidelines say they don't actually want us to be singing because that could uh, transmit the spread. Um, but what we're going to do is Kissy's going to go ahead and lead us. Um, and I would just encourage you guys to just use this time to sort of worship in your hearts and sing along and make melody in your hearts and just use this time to allow the Lord just to prepare our hearts for what I know he wants to do here this morning. So let's pray and just ask him to be with us and to bless us as we worship him. So, Father, we thank you so much for today and we thank you for, uh, Lord, just the blessing of being able to gather together again as your people. Lord, and we pray that even under these sort of different circumstances, Lord, that you would allow us to enter into your presence. Lord, allow us to worship even now in our hearts, Lord, and just... Uh, Use this time to prepare our hearts, we pray, just to, uh, to hear from you, to be together with you. And we thank you, Lord. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So you can stand or you can sit, whatever uh, you please, as we, uh, as we worship the Lord together.
Lord Jesus, open our eyes, God. Show us your truth, Lord. We love you, we worship you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can sit down. So in love. 
Well, good morning, everybody. When I say it is good to see you, I actually mean it is good to see you. I've been staring at a red light for eight months, just assuming you're out there somewhere doing something. So it is really good to see some familiar faces here, and you all look great with your masks. Uh, it's great to have our, uh, our online audience still with us. Uh, out there. Uh, just glad to be together. Who knew that coming to church could be so exciting? I think at this point I'm supposed to... Oh no, we're not going to dismiss the kids quite yet. Let's keep the kids in for just another minute because we have something super special to do here on our first Sunday back. What a better way to celebrate today. We're going to have communion at the end, but even before we get started, we're going to do a baby dedication. Is it even still a baby dedication? What is it, eight months, six months, nine months? Oh well, let's bring them up. Let's bring up the Sedano family. Let's welcome them. We are so excited. We have David and Yelena, and uh, today we're going to dedicate Owen Solomon Sedano to the Lord. What a great power name, biblical power name that is. So we have Owen is here and. Big brother David, and even bigger sister Audrey. Good to see you guys. And uh, I love baby dedications because to me, uh, more so than just dedicating uh, a child unto the Lord, what we're really doing as a church family is we're dedicating this family to the Lord. And we're saying that we're going to come alongside them and we're going to support them in the raising of this uh, wonderful child unto the Lord so we're going to pray, we're going to all extend a hand to the Sedanos, and we're going to pray for little Owen Solomon, uh, just that the Lord would bless him as he grows into a mighty, mighty man of God. So join me if you would, and let's pray. So Father, how we thank you, Lord, for this precious family, Lord. We thank you for David and Yelena, first of all, and just their commitment to you, Lord, and their desire to raise their children according to your heart, Lord, and your ways and the things you've revealed in your word, Lord. We thank you uh, for Audrey, and we thank you for little David, Lord. And now this morning, we thank you for Owen, Lord. Owen Solomon, Lord, what a blessing he will be. Father, we just pray that you would uh, just work in his life, Lord, as David and Yelena entrust that life to you. Lord, we pray that you would work in him just to develop a heart, that seeks after you, Lord, uh, a man after your own heart, Lord, just as, uh, as David was. And so we pray for him, Lord, that you would bless him. Lord, we know that you have great plans for him, works that you already plan to do through him. And so we pray that you'd give David and Elena wisdom as they guide and instruct and as they encourage him, Lord, in his relationship with you. Lord, and we pray first and foremost that you would... Um, you'd be working directly in his heart. Lord, draw him unto yourself, we pray, and we want to dedicate his life to you this morning. Uh, and we ask it, Lord, in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. Amen, Sedanos. Fantastic. Thank you, guys. Awesome. Good work. You guys did a great job. That was so super good. Awesome. All right. Fantastic. So, uh, the rest of you characters can turn to Acts chapter 21. Now we're going to dismiss the kids for some socially distant activities and, uh, 
and the youth group. Um, the rest of you guys, grab your Bibles or turn them on or do whatever it is that you do uh, and turn to Acts chapter 21. We're back in the book of Acts, sort of working our way through this exciting account as we've seen the church born, we've seen the, the gospel being taken out from Jerusalem out into those surrounding regions and so much further uh, even beyond that. And today's text, I have to tell you, I'm, I'm sure it's just some sort of a very cosmic uh, coincidence, <laughs> but I think today's text is so timely. I think it is so incredibly applicable to really all that we've been dealing with and all of this disruption that we're experiencing in our lives that we've, uh, that we've been sort of living with for the past almost eight months now. And I think our text today really illustrates uh, what is such an important principle by which the Apostle Paul lived his life, and it's one which will be incredibly valuable to us as well, especially in terms of you know, our heart's desire just to increase the effectiveness of our own Christian service and our witness and our influence, our testimony for the kingdom. So um, this morning, you will not want to miss this. If you're at home, don't get up, don't miss it, because I will tell you right now that number five is a game changer. So that's my best clickbait for this morning. But let's pray and just ask the Lord to really bless uh, his word today. So, Father, we do thank you for uh, just the, Lord, the blessing of being together, Lord, and we thank you uh, for the, the blessing of your word, Lord, and the way that you use it to speak into our lives, Lord. And as we pray each and every time we open your word, Lord, we pray that you would be our teacher, that the teaching ministry of your spirit would be manifest here amongst us today, Lord. We pray for open hearts, Lord, for open ears to hear what your spirit would say to your church, Lord. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, for months now, right, we have been tracing the movements. We've been traveling with the Apostle Paul as he has traveled on these three different journeys of, you know, bringing the gospel uh, specifically to the Gentile world. Bible students, of course, call these the three missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. And I know that for the past few weeks, we've been very slowly kind of winding down on what is really the last leg of this last journey. We've talked about the fact that Paul has been now direct, divinely directed by the Spirit to travel to Jerusalem and then ultimately to go on to Rome. And then we know now, but he didn't know then, that he will travel to Rome, but he'll do it on this kind of all-expense-paid Mediterranean cruise, right, as a prisoner of the Roman Empire. And recently, we've watched as the Spirit was warning Paul, right, city after city of the tribulation that was waiting for him there as he arrived in Jerusalem. And it wasn't to prevent Paul from making the trip, but we've seen it was really to prepare him for what he was about to have to endure. And most recently, most notably maybe, last week we looked at the most dramatic of those warnings. Remember Paul and his team had just arrived there in Caesarea. They kind of paused on their way to Jerusalem. 
And we saw that the, that trusted, proven prophet named Agabus, you know, he had this history, he had this track record of being right, and he made this super dramatic display. Remember, he tied himself up with Paul's belt, and he promised that that very same fate would await Paul as he arrived into the city of Jerusalem. And then we saw his friends, remember how they were pleading with him out of that love that they had for him, maybe that he would change his plans and just, you know, he could avoid this danger. But when we left off last time in verse 14, Luke wrote that when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, the will of the Lord be done. So as difficult as this was, I think they recognized it for what it was. This was the Lord's will for Paul's life. And so now as we continue in our very next verse, we see finally this long-anticipated arrival because Luke writes that after those days, so after those seven days that were spent there at the house of Philip in Caesarea, he says, after those days, we packed and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. So Paul's this kind of guy, right? Everywhere Paul goes, his party seems to grow. And we've seen they've now picked up some additional companions here from their stop in Caesarea, including this man named Nason who had originally, we see he came from Cyprus. So he, this would have made him, remember we talked about those Hellenistic Jews, those Jews who were raised within, and they would have been more open to kind of the Greek culture. Now he's a fellow believer who apparently had a home there in Jerusalem, and he was going to host Paul and this team. Remember, he's traveling with this team of Gentile pastors as well as Luke and Silas and he was going to host them at a time when it would have been extremely difficult to find a room he's going to host them during this busy Pentecost celebration that's that feast that Paul was trying to get there to attend and so they make this kind of a 70 mile journey probably a multi-day walk and they arrive into this busy environment, this sort of a, a feast time atmosphere here in the holy city. And it says in verse 17 that when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. Now, for all of you Bible students, put a little mark or a circle around verse 17 because that marks the end officially of all of these main missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul as he finally arrives here in Jerusalem. And we're gonna see that the whole balance of the book of Acts deals with his arrest and then his trial with his journey on to Rome and then his trial and his imprisonment once he gets to Rome. So best estimates put us probably about 25 years from this point back until that first day of Pentecost that we saw, remember, in Acts chapter 
too, as the church was born with the coming of the Spirit there, right here in Jerusalem. So it's kind of neat, I think, the way that we've sort of come full circle 25 years later as Paul now arrives here back into Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost again, but now, of course, as an adamant advocate for the Lord Jesus. So he and his team, they're greeted gladly by the brethren. We have this warm fellowship that's extended on that first day. And then it says in verse 18 that on the following day, that Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. So they go from this large gathering of all the saints on the first day, now to kind of this smaller meeting. It was just Paul. It was his traveling team, which included Luke right, the human author of the book of Acts, and then the local leadership there of the Jerusalem church, the elders. That would have included, of course, James. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus, that respected elder, the recognized head of the Jerusalem church, the author, of course, of the book of James, which would have already have been written and sort of in circulation by this point. And all of these men, Right, who would have been so anxious to hear this report from Paul of what it is that he had been up to on all of these many travels. And it says in verse 19 that when he had greeted them, it says that he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Now just imagine, right, what an incredible meeting this must have been as Paul had shared, probably not just about his most recent travels, but most likely about all three of his missionary journeys. Because notice Luke tells us here that Paul shared in detail. And it's interesting because the specific sense of those words in the Greek is that he covered every single thing. Literally, it means one after another. And so this wasn't some sort of a quick five-minute kind of a missionary update overview like we might hear during announcements on a Sunday morning. He's sharing, right? They're listening, and they're so excited to hear about what God has been doing through Paul's life, each and every detail. And think about it. Paul would have told them about Antioch and Cyprus and Salmos and Perga and Galatia, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Corinth, Ephesus. All of these cities that we've studied, all of this ground that we have covered as we've studied through these journeys, and imagine him telling them all of the events that we've seen happened in those cities. Not to mention, he probably told them about the persecutions and the imprisonments and the beatings and the stonings, that message there that he preached on Mars Hill, all of those unusual miracles that were occurring through his life, and the multitudes of people that were saved all along the way. And of course, we know, right, the Apostle Paul, he is surely not declaring any of these things in some sort of a lame attempt to get them to be impressed with him personally, the heart of the Apostle Paul is he's sharing all of these things so that these men would be as deeply impacted 
by the greatness of God's love for the Gentiles. That fact that God loves and that God wants to save these Gentiles just as much as he ever wanted to save the Jews. And this was still, even 25 years later, this would have been a very hard pill for any Jew in the first century to really swallow or to fully accept. But to their credit, these men did. Look what it says at the be- just the beginning of verse 20. It says that when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. Right? They got it. James and these other Jewish leaders, these elders here at the church in Jerusalem, they are excited, truly excited, to hear about God's great love for the Gentiles, to hear about the way that the gospel was working so powerfully amongst the Gentiles, how many of these Gentiles were becoming Christians, because surely they could sense that it was the Lord who was doing the work. And so they wanted to rejoice with Paul. They wanted to give the glory to God. And imagine, no doubt, they could see standing right in front of them are these godly Gentile men, right? These pastors who had come along with Paul who were now their brothers in the Lord. And remember, these men had brought this generous offering from the Gentile churches to help the Jewish saints that were there in Jerusalem suffering as a result of that famine. And so here are these Jewish brethren, these leaders, they could see the reality of God's work amongst the Gentiles through the churches, such a warm welcome, such a good report, and yet, right? If you read ahead, you get the and yet. And yet, as much as we would love to just leave it there, end the chapter there, right? As we continue on in verse 20, what we find is that while the elders were fully rejoicing in Paul's report, there was also some serious apprehension about Paul's reputation that was floating around amongst the church there in Jerusalem. And so now they kind of needed to break the bad news to their dear brother and let him in on this kind of a sticky situation. Again, in verse 20, it says that they glorified the Lord and they said to him, you see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed and they are all zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. It's like they're saying, you see, Paul, we have a bit of a problem here in Jerusalem, and the problem is you being here in Jerusalem, right? You can almost kind of sense the apprehension as they kind of share this hard truth with their beloved brother. No sooner had Paul finished sharing this encouraging report, now they bring up these discouraging rumors that were being spread about Paul amongst the Jewish Christians there. And of course, it's so true what they say that though a rumor doesn't have a leg to stand on, 
it still travels mighty fast. So here the, the elders are, I believe they are genuinely happy with the ways that the grace of God is working through Paul and amongst the Gentiles. And yet the landscape was so very different at home here within this Christian community, which was made up almost entirely of Jews, right? These Christians still very much valued many of their Jewish customs. It says there that they were zealous for the law. And we know that there were lots of them who felt this way. Luke tells us that there were many myriads of Jews who had believed. Now, some of the experts who study these kinds of things, they estimate that the church in Jerusalem at this time would have numbered somewhere between 25 and 50,000 people, right? They're in the city and the, some of the surrounding areas. And so just in the same way as we've watched, the gospel was having this incredible impact in this phenomenal way in the Gentile world, it was also having that same phenomenal effect upon the Jews right here within Jerusalem. But here's what was happening, is that as these Jews were embracing their Jewish Messiah, Jesus, as they were saved by the gospel, they were placing their faith in him, in his sacrifice on the cross for the forgiveness of their sins, but they were bringing with them into this newfound faith in God, they were bringing in this continued reverence for the law of God, the law of Moses. But it wasn't so much at all so that they could earn their salvation, but it was more so just an expression of their salvation. It was born out of hearts that were so thankful and so loving of the Lord. And it was also a means of them maintaining this close connection with their Jewish culture, with their Jewish heritage. So understanding all of that, we can also understand how they would have been a little bit rattled as they were hearing that here's Paul as he's making all of these missionary journeys, that he was teaching those Jews just like them, but who were living out in Gentile areas, that he was somehow teaching them that they should forsake Moses, that they should stop circumcising their sons, that they should abandon their customs or abandon their heritage. But here's the problem. You guys know, as students of the scriptures, the problem was that like most rumors, this rumor here concerning the Apostle Paul was absolutely false. Because what Paul did teach concerning the law of Moses and concerning salvation, what he taught was simply that every one of us, whether Jew or Gentile, he taught that we are all saved exactly the same way. And it's no different today. We're saved through putting our trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. Paul taught that the, the keeping of the law of Moses, whether it's circumcision or other Jewish customs, he said that those things play no part in a person's salvation. And you remember he wrote about this in the first letter that he wrote to Corinth, and I think it's important for us to remember, as we've seen 
studying now through this, that both, both First and Second Corinthians, those two letters were already written. They would have already been kind of out there in circulation. And so we might say that Paul was already on record for what his position really was. And this is what he wrote. He said that as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And so I ordain in all the churches. Was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. He says circumcision is nothing, uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters, and let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. So what Paul is declaring is that you don't need to become a Gentile culturally if you become saved as a Jew, and you don't need to become a Jew culturally if you're saved as a Gentile. He says, whatever you are, just keep doing it. And then we know that he wrote to that church at Corinth, as well as when he wrote to the believers at Rome, he especially encouraged those new Gentile believers to do what? He said, be very sensitive to the consciences, be sensitive to kind of the, the scruples, if you will, of your Jewish brethren. Be sensitive in the way that you exercise your liberties understanding that that could stumble them, right? 1 Corinthians 8, Romans chapter 14. Again, both books which had already been written and were already in circulation. So the point in all this is not only did Paul not demand that these Jewish Christians who prized their heritage and their customs, not only did he not command that they give up their heritage or their customs, but he went even further, exhorting these Gentile believers to be loving and to be tolerant and to be careful that they didn't offend those very customs. Just a quick example. Remember in Acts chapter 16? Remember when Paul was going to bring Timothy along with him, and he specifically had Timothy circumcised just because he knew what a stumbling block that could be to these Jews that they were trying to reach. We talked about it when we talked about that chapter, but again, for us, the point in our own lives is to remember that none of these kinds of secondary side issues have anything to do with how a person actually gets saved. It just has to do with how we express our love and our worship of the Lord after we're saved. And the best thing that we can do, we do so well when we will just allow those who are around us to respond to the Lord as he works in their own hearts, personally and individually, just as we would want them to respond to us as the Lord works in our hearts. Again, dealing with issues that have nothing to do with salvation. So Paul's position was clear, right? He was on the record, but here his enemies had been working overtime, twisting up his words and really calling into question all of his teachings. So here we have the leaders in Jerusalem, and I have to appreciate them for it. They wanted to give Paul kind of a heads up about the situation, about this attitude that was uh, there toward him, because they knew that there was going to be some trouble 
if they didn't get this kind of addressed and clarified. And what we see next is that they had given this some serious thought because the next thing they're going to do is propose a solution to the Apostle Paul's problem. They say, hey, Paul, this is a controversial thing. Let's try to see if we can get out in front of this a little bit. Look at verse 23 and 24. They say, therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. So the solution to them seemed to be simple, right? It involves Paul here participating with these four Jewish Christian men, participating with them in the completion of this vow that they had taken, which in the context certainly clearly seems to be a Nazarite vow. Now we've seen this before. Remember Paul himself took a similar vow back in chapter 18. Remember as he was leaving that wicked city of Corinth. And remember the Nazarite vow Numbers chapter 6. Remember, it was a voluntary vow. It had nothing to do at all with someone's salvation, but it had everything to do with their consecration. Right? It was a way for them to voluntarily set themselves apart to God. It has to do, it's a person who already knew God and who loved God, but wanted to express an extraordinary commitment to God. And what would happen, we saw, is that during the period of the vow, at least a 30-day period, they would drink no wine, they would eat no grapes, they would avoid any contact with anything that was dead, and they would let their hair grow during that time as a sign of this vow that they had taken. And then once the vow was completed, that hair would be cut off, and then that hair, which represented that devotion or that consecration to God, it would be put on the fire in the temple. And it was the fire of a peace offering. So it was offered back to the Lord along with several other sacrifices that were required. And so the suggestion here wasn't necessarily that Paul would take the vow along with these men, but simply that he would support them by sponsoring them, covering the costs of these extra animal sacrifices that were needed, and that he would take part with them in this kind of an initial cleansing bath. It was called a mikvah. It's kind of a, a Jewish ceremonial purification, which they still even practice to this day. They're like these little baptismals that are all around different areas of worship or temples or holy places. And you go into the mikvah, kind of immerse yourself in the water, and then you come out. And it represented their desire to be clean of any defilement that they might have brought with them from the world. It's like, here I, I come in to worship God here at the temple, and I'm now clean, and I'm undefiled. And remember that Paul is coming in 
straight out of the Gentile world. So in the eyes of these Jews, culturally, he is quite defiled. So what they're saying is, you know, it would probably be a good idea for you to go through this kind of a cleansing ceremony as a way of just kind of cleaning up any of these misconceptions concerning you. You guys see what I did there? Cleansing ceremony and cleaning up, right? Going to kind of wash away all the problems, right? Make a clean, fresh start, right? You guys with me? Clean up his act a little bit. Okay, forget it. They're cracking up at home. I know that's what's happening. They're rolling on the floor next to the couch. Notice this next. As they propose this plan to Paul, notice what they're, they're very quick in the next couple of verses. They want to kind of overcome any objections he would have. They want to clarify their own convictions. They want to remind him of what their position is on this issue of the salvation of the Gentiles, what their expectations were for these new believers. So they said, hey, we think that you should support these new Jewish Christian men in fulfilling their Jewish Nazarite vow but, it says in verse 25, concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing, except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. So what are they doing? They're simply reminding Paul of that letter that they had all written together. Remember back in Acts chapter 15 during what we called the Jerusalem Council. It was that time when the Jewish church was kind of first grappling with this idea of Gentile believers as the door of faith was being opened up to the Gentiles. And remember that the council got together and then they offered these words of encouragement that Paul and Barnabas were then to take to these Gentile believers that were living in Gentile areas, but they were mixing now intimately in these churches with brand new Jewish believers, right? To they, those believers that would have been especially sensitive about some of those areas. And the point in these guys bringing this up here at this point is they're trying to offer Paul some reassurance that nothing had changed concerning their position. Nothing has changed concerning their conclusion that they had all come to together, that the Gentiles are not under the law, not only in salvation, but they're also not under the law even after salvation, right? That they just wanted these Gentiles to be aware of their liberties and not to stumble their brothers. And, and I take time with this because I think it's very, very important for us to realize the heart and the motivation of what they were proposing to Paul. I believe that these elders, they were great with the salvation of the Gentiles independent of the law. They didn't have the slightest interest in trying to turn Gentile believers into Jews once they were saved. They recognized right along with Paul that all of the keeping of religious rules and regulations and the Jewish traditions, that those things had nothing to do with really living a holy life before God, but they had everything to do simply with the customs of the Jews and the heritage and the culture 
of the Jews. And so that was the heart behind this plan. And yet as we think about it, it did seemingly put Paul, right, the champion of God's grace, the apostle of grace, it puts Paul into kind of a precarious position, doesn't it? Because for him to take part in this plan might seem to some to compromise his grace-based convictions. And surely we're going to see that he's going to stand up to this attack on his principles, stand up to this attack on his teachings. He's going to straighten these guys out, fiercely defend the truth, and take a strong stand for what he knew was right. Look what it says in verse 26. It says that then Paul took the men, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. And we say, wait, what? I did not see that coming. Actually, I did see that coming because I read it earlier this week. But rather than fiercely oppose the plan, Paul goes right along with it. And I have to say, he has drawn no shortage of criticism because of it. And this is another one of those things here in the book of Acts that Paul does that kind of makes us scratch our heads. And we wonder, what in the world was Paul thinking? And so just quickly, those who are critical of him claim that he's taking part in some foolishly concocted scheme and that he's compromising his convictions and creating the impression that he was still under the law. He's creating confusion with, that conflicted with all of his previous teachings. Right? All of these previous teachings where he said that believers were not at all subject to these things. Those people that are critical of Paul say that somehow he was pressured by the elders here and that out of his fear of being rejected by the Jews that he sort of abandoned his beliefs. And yet I have to say with respect that this kind of a view only entirely misses the point completely and I believe misrepresents the Apostle Paul tragically. It is inconceivable that Paul would ever agree to anything that would ever give out a mixed message on how a person is saved or do anything that would make people believe that salvation is somehow based upon trusting in Jesus and anything else, including keeping the law of Moses. Paul just simply wouldn't do it. That, that is not the Paul who is revealed to us in the pages of the scriptures. If they held a knife to his neck, he would not compromise or contradict his faith in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Remember just last week, we saw as Paul came here to Jerusalem, he said in verse 13 of this same chapter, I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So there is no way you could tell me that Paul walks into this environment and caves 
on any level and certainly not on the level of salvation. There is something so much more important that is at play here. But first, right, even before we see what that is, we need to make sure that we understand so that we really do understand Paul's position, we need to realize that the sacrifices that are associated with the Nazarite vow had nothing at all to do with atonement with God, right? At one meant with God, or what we call salvation, right? Nothing associated with the Nazarite vow, including those sacrifices, none of it diminish the death of Jesus on the cross as the sole satisfying payment for the forgiveness of our sins. So when Paul agrees to participate in sponsoring even those sacrifices, he is not compromised in any way concerning Jesus, concerning Jesus as the only sufficient sin offering. He's also not in any way violating anything that he's already written in all of those letters that have been written so far. First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, which is such a clear condemnation against all of this kind of legalism, and of course the book of Romans, which is his treatise on salvation on the basis of faith in Jesus alone. So what was happening here was far from any kind of a compromise on the part of the Apostle Paul, but rather it was a clear example of him living out what was one of his most heartfelt convictions. And so this becomes for us what I believe is one of the most important applications related to our Christian lives. Because I think it gives us something so incredibly important. It's a glimpse not only into the heart of the Apostle Paul, but further, it's a glimpse at what was at the heart of his fruitfulness as a Christian and his Christian service and his effectiveness for the kingdom. So that's why I call it a principle to live by. It's a principle that we see Paul operating in here in Jerusalem, that he operated in his entire life as a Christian, whether he was in the Gentile world or the Jewish world, and he wrote about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where he said that, though I am free from all men, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law as without law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak I became as weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. And he says, now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be a partaker of it with you. What message could possibly be more important than the message of the gospel? And what Paul was willing to do to reach the lost 
as he's declaring here in 1 Corinthians. That's precisely what we're seeing in the passage here before us this morning. He's applying this very same principle as he tried to win the lost. He also applies it now as it's working to be a, Paul wants to be a unifying influence within this broad diversity of culture and personality that we still today see represented all throughout the body of Christ. He says, I have become all things to all men. So this is such a beautiful passage because both Paul and James were actually living out. It's that same sentiment that was going to be expressed by Christian theologians many years later. Maybe some of us are familiar with it. It says, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. Because they're modeling for us the way that we as Christians can hold on to our own convictions concerning these non-essentials in the Christian life. Those issues that are all addressed biblically, but on which Christians can differ. And so they're showing us how we can hold on to our own convictions without breaking fellowship with other Christians, much less treating them somehow as an enemy because they happen to believe a little bit differently concerning those things than we do. So whether we're talking about different views on spiritual gifts or church government or what the future holds or what day of the week we're supposed to worship on, whether it's even about you know, food that's offered to idols, or in other words, what level of interaction each one of us as Christians feel comfortable having with that pagan culture all around us. Maybe more fitting for all of us right now this morning, who we're voting for, right? Or whether we're following the guidance on opening our churches, or whether we're not following the guidance on coming back to church. Any of these things can and are doing damage to the unity of the church, unless we can set them aside and really just recognize that these are not essential issues and just allow others liberty as they exercise their own convictions, even if we disagree, because they're just not all that important. They are not a measure of our love. They're not a measure of our faith or our devotion to God. So when I used to travel more in the past as a pastor, whether it was nationally or more so internationally, if I was teaching or I was speaking somewhere, I learned very early on that it is so important to always elevate and to honor their local understanding, right? Honor the host's understanding of a non-essential issue, elevate that above my own. Whatever environment that I've been invited to speak, so if a suit and tie is what's expected in their culture to show proper respect to God when the saints assemble, then I will happily stuff myself into a suit even if it's 120 degrees at 10 a.m. in the heart of India. 
right? If they have a stricter view of modesty, maybe, than we have here in the United States. And if that definition of modesty extends to the fact that even the arms of men need to be covered, let alone the legs, right? Then I will happily put on long sleeves, right? Whatever it is that we need to do in order to be able to enjoy undistracted fellowship with the saints there. If we need to wear a mask so that everyone can be comfortable, then we will happily wear a mask. Ouch, right? No, none of us like wearing a mask, right? We may or may eventually find out that they didn't do any good after all, but who cares? Right? So whether it's wearing a mask or social distancing or keeping the churches closed until we're allowed to reopen them, none of it really matters. It was funny, as I was finishing this up yesterday morning, Heather texted me, right, and she said that one of our sweet kids in the children's ministry said that she didn't want to come to church this morning because she didn't want to wear a mask. And so I texted Heather back and I told her to tell this little sweet girl that I didn't want to wear a mask either, but that when my, my wife Michelle said I still had to come. So here I am. And I'll put my mask on as soon as I'm done talking. So my personal conviction, right, shared by all of the other pastors here at Calvary Chapel Mountain View is that we need to be all things to all people that we might by some means win the war. And I believe that far from somehow compromising our convictions, we're elevating this principle so that we don't end up winning the battle but losing the war. So if we're ministering within the context of a pagan culture, which we are, then we can stand to elevate and to honor the local understanding of this kind of a non-essential even above our own if we happen to disagree, as long as we're doing it for the sake of the gospel message. And the truth is that as believers in Jesus, I think the more that we grow in our faith in Jesus, the less we tend to major on the minors, and the more we tend to just want to love him and to really love each and every one of those people that he died for. Don't you find that in your own life? Now, the good news for you guys is that we are almost out of time. Okay. I know you are a super smart group, much smarter than average, much smarter than me, right? You get the point of this passage. Let's work hard to continue to ensure that we are becoming all things to all people so that we might by all means save some. Do it remembering that this we do for the gospel's sake. Because isn't that what makes it all worth it? Right? Listen more. Talk less. Be kind. Don't be critical. Right? Be students of and really be sensitive to this pagan culture all around us. And I think we can rest in just letting the Lord be the one to do the heart work. Let him be the one to change hearts. No one was ever argued into the kingdom of God. 
one quick thought before we close. As I studied this passage this week, surely we can imagine that the Apostle Paul knew. He knew from a doctrinal and from a theological perspective, he knew that at this point that these Jews were clinging too tightly still to all of their traditions and still to the law. And yet we see here, I believe, that Paul had chosen to just leave that with the Lord. Leave that with the Lord. Let the Lord do that work in their hearts in his timing. And of course, as time went on, we know that one day God was going to have to send a special letter to the Jews specifically about these issues, right? The epistle to the Hebrews. One of the last letters written of the New Testament, I personally believe, written anonymously by Paul himself. And the letter to the Hebrews was written to so beautifully explain the right and intimate relationship between the old and the new covenants, right? All of those types and shadows in the old covenant that point to, and they really find their fulfillment in the substance of the Lord Jesus. I love what is often said about the book of Hebrews. It said that the book of Hebrews was written to the Hebrews to tell them to stop being Hebrews. Now, we estimate that that letter was written probably in about A.D. 63 or 64, probably about five years from where we are right now. But it wouldn't actually be until the city and the temple in Jerusalem was finally destroyed in A.D. 70, it wouldn't be until that point that all of this traditional Jewish worship actually stopped because they didn't have a temple to do it in. So all of that is to say, simply as we finish, God has his ways of accomplishing what he wants. And we can rest in the fact that he will accomplish it. We just need to do our little part to be all things to all men so that we might by all means save some. Now, we're going to close this morning by celebrating communion. And I know it's not the first Sunday of the month when we traditionally do this, but we wanted to do it today just in celebration of being back together again um, physically. You know, you at home, I hope that you will join us uh, with some elements that you have. Join us as we take communion, just again to celebrate that it's that blood of Jesus Christ that unites us all in the Spirit, makes it possible for us to enjoy uh, not only fellowship with one another, but most importantly, that intimate fellowship that we have with the Lord. So I'm going to invite Kissy to come back up, and she's going to minister. I think you all should have the communion uh, celebration cup there. If you don't, just raise your hands, and we'll have somebody bring you a nice, clean, germ-free cup. And uh, let's just worship the Lord 
and take this opportunity to, uh, to observe communion together.
I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you, O my soul, rejoice. Take joy, my King, in what you Let it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. Let it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ears. Amen. Amen. So I just pray that the Lord would really pour out his grace upon each and every one of us this week so that we could uh, be all things to all men. Amen. So listen, um, as we dismiss today, I think what we are uh, supposed to do, if you don't mind, is exit out the side doors just to avoid the bottleneck there in the foyer. But if you head out the side doors and back around to the front, and we will actually have some prayer councils, uh, counselors available um, a few minutes after service, right outside here um, near those tables. Um, so we'll try to have some socially distant prayer support. So if you need prayer for anything, um, please don't, uh, uh, don't delay in, uh, in coming forward and asking for it. We're going to start pre-service prayer again next Sunday morning, as Susie mentioned today. And uh, again, just so thankful for all of you that came out and so thankful for all of you that have joined us. Uh, online, and uh, it's just good to be together again with the saints. Amen? Amen. God bless you guys, and no meeting in the park tonight. No. So uh, we've met already here today, so.